Okay, last time we finished with the Sevi Tabla Sutra, which was primarily of ethical concern. Now this time we will study the Bahu Dhatuka Sutra, the discourse on many kinds of elements, which is called a philosophical sutra, concerned with the understanding of reality in early Buddhism. Okay, but first the Buddha opens the sutta with a statement of ethical significance. He says, Whatever fears arise, all arise because of the fool, not because of the wise man. Whatever, whatever troubles arise, whatever calamities arise, all arise because of the fool, not because of the wise man. It's a very sensible statement. <laughs> very obvious when one reflects about it. We just consider our own lives, the situation in society, all the conflicts, all of the quarrels, all of the cheating, all the corruption, all war, battles, um, exploitation, injustice. All of that comes because of foolish people. If this was a world where wise people were always in charge of government, always in charge of important departments in the government, then everything would be wonderful. There would be no problems with political conflicts between parties at odds with each other. There would be no corruption in government. There would be no conflicts with neighbors or with relatives. Our lives would just always be peaceful and harmonious. But we could see that all of the problems, all the trouble, danger, conflicts, quarrels, even calamities that we meet in life always originate from foolish people. And if we ourselves are foolish, then we become the troublemakers. <laughs> and other people look on us and they say, ah, if he would only get lost, then everything would be all right for us. <laughs> so the Buddha opens with this very simple and obvious statement. Then he uses a very striking simile to show how a fool can make trouble for others. He says it's just like a fire that starts in a little shed, or a little hut made of reeds or grass. If the fire starts in that shed, then it starts blazing up, then it can spread to a large house, even a very secure house with a peaked roof, with plastered walls, and still the fire will catch into the large house, and then it will spread and burn that house down. And so the Buddha says, in the same way, Whatever troubles arise, whatever conflicts, whatever calamities, all come because of the fool. We could have many good, normal people, righteous, upright people, trying to live their lives in a normal way. But then if one little fool comes into their midst, he can start spreading slanderous remarks about one person. So, Mr. Jones, he always is appearing to be your friend, but he's really out to get you. Then he tells Mr. Smith that this one 
he appears to be your friend, but he's really out to get you. And so by these slanderous remarks, by this scheming and cunning, a fool can cause even a large group of people to come into conflict with each other. I think maybe <laughs> today one might say that so many of the problems in this present-day society come from foolish type of person known as <laughs> politician. Yeah, it's uh, uh, not very fair because I think history of man is history of foolishness. Yeah. And it is most foolish to to ask other kind of about history. Yeah. Those who know what I'm talking about, they know. Okay, so the Buddha then continues that the fool brings fear, the fool brings trouble, the fool brings calamity. But from the wise man there is no fear, no danger, no trouble, no calamity. And then the Buddha draws the conclusion for the monks, he says, therefore monks, you should train yourself to be wise men, pandita. I think there's another sutta where the Buddha distinguishes what are, how do we know the difference between the fool and the wise person. Then he says that the difference can be seen in their conduct. That is, the fool is one who engages in unwholesome actions of body, speech and mind, whereas a wise person is one who <coughs> behaves in wholesome ways, in virtuous ways by body, speech, and mind. So we have these <coughs> outward indicators of who is the foolish person, who is the wise person. Even if a fool tries to behave wisely, sooner or later, he's going to be found out. He just gives his real character away through his actions. Okay, now the Buddha explains to the monks how they can be wise men. And here I have to say, there's actually a jump in the text which is a little difficult to explain, since in the first paragraph the Buddha is indicating that the wise person is really one who's guided by righteous conduct, by wholesome conduct, and doesn't engage in sort of scheming, troublemaking, brewing up conflict. But now he jumps to a philosophical level of understanding that the wise man, the wise person, is one who is skilled in the elements, skilled in the bases, skilled in dependent origination, skilled in what is possible and what is impossible. These are four, four headings of the teaching. Now the Buddha will analyze and explain each of these in detail. <coughs> Okay, the first one we have are the elements. These are the datu. We translate datu as elements. The word in Pali, it comes from the root dhati. Like even like you have this in singular, the word dhanawa, to put or to place. And so datu means something which exists in reality, on its own, through its own nature rather than something which is conceptually constructed or a product of conceptual elaboration, conceptual thinking. 
the datus are the fundamental constituents of actuality or reality. And one of the profound realizations of the Buddha, one of his profound knowledges, was the understanding of how this world, this universe, with all of its different entities, with all of its different types of living beings, is actually a great process made up of a multiplicity, a wide variety of different types of actualities, different realities called elements. Normally, in our normal way of thinking, we conceive the world in terms of persons and things, external physical objects and different types of living beings, different types of creatures. But in the Buddha's insight into reality, his realization of the nature of reality, he saw that when one penetrates to the deep level of reality, one finds not solid, lasting, substantial objects, not persisting living beings, but just a flow or process made up of many different types of elements functioning together in certain conditional relationships. And the Buddha, when he investigated himself on the night of his enlightenment, when he investigated his own person, he found that a living being is made up of 18 different types of elements. These are called the 18 doctors. We have... Okay, first, we have five sense faculties. The eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. Each of these is a distinct datu, a distinct element, because each has a different function, a different nature. Then we have corresponding to each of these five sense faculties, there's a particular object. That is, the forms corresponding to the eye, visible forms, sounds correspond to the ear, smells correspond to the nose, taste correspond to the tongue, and then tangible or tactile sensations correspond to the body. And then for each of these, there is a different type of consciousness which has the function of knowing or experiencing or cognizing that object through that sense faculty. We always think, I see forms, I see sights, I hear sounds, I feel touches. And we imagine that there's some kind of continuing I, the real person, the real self, behind this whole process of experiencing. But in the Buddha's understanding, there's just this flux or flow of elements. And in each case, there's a particular sense faculty, a particular sense object, and a consciousness which arises through that sense faculty, knowing that object, experiencing that object. 
And so in the case of the I, <coughs> in the case of the sense faculties, the I is one type of element, different from the ear, nose, tongue, and the body. So the I has that special function of serving as the base for I consciousness. One doesn't know forms, visible forms, through the ear. Even if you struggle and strive with all your might, I'm going to hear visible forms. I'm going to hear visible forms. Even if you strive and struggle, you can never hear visible forms through the ear. <laughs> you can only see forms through the eye. The eye is always a base for eye consciousness, never for ear consciousness. And forms can only be known of the five senses, they can only be known through the eye. One never knows forms through the ear, nose, tongue, or body. The eye can only know forms. The eye cannot know sounds, smells, tastes, or touches. And these five types of consciousness, they arise only through one particular sense faculty and have one kind of object. The eye consciousness only forms. Ear consciousness only sounds. Nose consciousness only smells, tongue consciousness only tastes, body consciousness only tangible objects. You can, if somebody gives you, or if you're eating, say, a mango, you put it into your mouth, it's the tongue consciousness working through the tongue which experiences the flavor. It's not the body consciousness. The body consciousness can feel whether the mango is soft, hard, whether it's um, cool or warm, but it's tongue consciousness which experiences the flavor. When you smell the mango, then you experience the smell through nose consciousness, not through the tongue, not through body consciousness. Okay, so in that case, each object is known only through one faculty and only or one object becomes available only through one sense faculty and is known only by one type of consciousness. Now in the case of the six, it's a little more complicated. <coughs> okay, the six speaks of the mind dhammas and mind consciousness. I speak at a relatively simple level, there's a complicated way to explain this based on the Abhidhamma, but I won't bring that in since it gets a little too complicated. Okay, we could understand the mind here to be a particular function of consciousness or a particular function of mind by which one turns to an object it verts to an object before one clearly knows it. So mind is this, when you have some idea forming, some thought, some conception, 
then there's a turning of the mind to another before one clearly knows it. And so now one has mind is that particular element, that particular, you could say, moment of consciousness by which one just turns to a mental object and before one clearly knows that object. Then the Dhammas, those are all purely mental phenomena, purely mental objects, things which are known only by the mind. We could include in Dhammas things like feeling. When you have a particular feeling, how do you know Somebody asks you, how are you feeling? Are you feeling happy or sad? You don't look out with your eye consciousness to see what, how the weather is today. You don't listen to hear what sounds are coming from the automobiles in the street or the neighbor who's making too much noise. You don't start sniffing to find out how you feel today, but rather you turn in and look in your mind to see what's going on in the mind, what kind of feeling you're experiencing. So you could say the feeling is a Dhamma, it's a mental object, and it's known through the mind because you turn inward, and the faculty of mind through which one knows it, that is mind consciousness. When you have a clear recognition, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling bored or neutral. This is mind consciousness. Or else when you're trying to maybe think about, say, working out a mathematical problem, maybe adding up a sum of numbers, there are various thoughts going through the mind, adding 15 plus 12, 27. Okay, so even though you might be writing the numbers, you're writing with pen, figure two, figure one, figure five, a plus sign, one, two, to make twelve. And that's eye consciousness is looking at the numbers. But what is understanding the numbers? Well, first, there is the concept of these numbers. What do these numbers mean? What do these figures mean? Fifteen, twelve. To grasp the meaning, but let's say the meaning of those figures, that is a dhamma, a mental object. And the turning of the mind to that object, when you're working on the uh, sum of the figures, that's the monoductive, the mind element. And what is understanding the numbers, that's mano vinyana that's also a good example. Okay, let's say a memory image. There comes an image of something that one has seen earlier. Now you're not seeing, maybe you saw, um, you met a friend earlier today, then later when you're sitting at home, you remember that meeting with the friend. Um, you're not, even though you have his image in your mind, but you're not seeing him with eye consciousness, but rather you're thinking about him. So the image in the mind, you could say that is a Dhamma, and when your mind turns to him to think about him, 
that is the mind element and then when you're actually thinking about him and recollecting the what happened when you met that's the mano vinyana Also, we could say, at the advanced level and the experience of insight meditation, when you're observing the phenomena, say bodily and mental phenomena, arising and passing away, we say, these are dhammas, these are phenomena, the bodily and mental phenomena. And the turning of the mind to those phenomena, that is the mind element. And then knowing them, this is body, this is a thought, this is a feeling, this is a desire, this is a feeling of bliss, of encouragement, of depression. All of this is the work of Mano Vinyana Now it's a little more complicated with the sixth group of elements than with the others, because whereas the I consciousness through body consciousness they know only one kind of object but in the case of the mano and dhammas and mano vinyana dhatu the mano vinyana dhatu that can know also it can take as its object the other five types of sense objects that is one could think about a form of an artist before he paints a picture, he will have a mental image of the form. So he's thinking about something, he's imagining in his mind what the picture is going to look like on the canvas. So he now has a kind of visible form. Maybe that's not a good example, but that's still in the imagination. Let us say, you're looking at a picture, a painting, and maybe you're trying to identify who is the artist? <laughs> okay, now you're looking at the picture. So the object is form. And there has to be the eye functioning, otherwise you don't see the form. And there has to be eye consciousness to bring that picture to the mind. But when eye consciousness brings the picture to the mind, you're still looking at the picture, but the mind is thinking, who is the artist? What is the style? Okay, that is mano vinyana dhatu, but it has a visible form of something. Or when you're listening, now you're listening to me speak. Okay, what is understanding my words? Not the ear consciousness. I'm speaking, the ear consciousness brings the sound to the mind. But then when it's happening so quickly, you, you don't recognize it. But when the ear consciousness brings the sound to the mind, then the manodhatu turns to the sound. And then the manovinyanadhatu distinguishes the meaning. And then the manovinyanadhatu is really like a high-speed runner, a super, super track star. Because what's happening so quickly, even when I speak one sentence, First, you're hearing each word individually. You're identifying the meaning of each word individually. You're joining all of those words together to form a sentence, and then you're understanding the meaning of the sentence. But it's happening so quickly that it seems just like a snap of a finger. 
but that's how fast the mind is working. And this is all just different moments, mind moments of Manovinyana Dhatu arising and passing, arising and passing. It's like, you know how the cartoonists make an animated cartoon? They draw each picture separately, but from one picture to another, there's just a little difference, very, very tiny difference. So you have thousands of pictures together, then you run them through all quickly, and then you have Mickey Mouse dancing and singing a song. <laughs> and it seems like a real live creature just engaging in the same action. But if you don't get deceived by this and you break into the studio and say, let's see the reality behind this. And then they say, no, 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 don't come in, don't come in, but you barge in. <laughs> you knock the guard out of the way, you go to the place where they're shooting the cartoon. They say, what is that really? You open the box, the camera, and you see little pictures, one after another, following each other, they've been following each other. And you say, aha, all the time, what looks like one moving creature. It's just a series of these individual frames, each one a little different. Here's Mickey, one time he's like this, and the next moment like that, <laughs> then like that. <laughs> we can also see that the nature by using a, what is called a stroboscope to light. It is a light which they uh, use mostly in the entertainment business and the theater. It is very strong light, but not even a split second. So when people are dancing and that light is coming, you can't see the movement of the people. You see them as Kubori uh, showed in different kind of blocked movements. <laughs> but in fact, they are all moving. But with these stroboscopic light, you get the impression these are all puppets in different kind of postures. So that is the reverse. Oh, that's the reverse, yeah. <laughs> okay, so those are the 18 elements. Okay, now the Buddha will now take, he's going to go through and explain the different classes of elements. So now we come to six elements. These are the six elements that make up, we say, a living being. The earth element, water element, fire element, air element, space element, and consciousness element. Okay, this is another way in which the Buddha has analyzed the nature of reality and of these six elements we've discussed the four elements quite often and this is the Buddha's analysis of physical reality and the Buddha has used this, he uses this analysis of the body into the four elements to show generally to show the similarity in nature between our physical body and the external world. Usually we think 
the body is mine, this is me, this is what I am, and the outer world, the natural world, is something quite different, something that's opposed to the body, to myself, to my physical body. But the Buddha takes this physical body and says, investigate it, and what does one find? There is the earth element. What is the earth element? It's actually the element of solidity. That physical quality, or that physical element by reason of which the body occupies but has extension, physical extension, spatial extension, by reason of which it has weight, hardness, some degree of solidity, hardness or softness, some degree of roughness or smoothness. And then one examines outer matter and one finds also physical bodies which have extension, they take up space, they're hard and soft, rough or smooth, light or heavy, and so there's earth element in the body, earth element externally, then just the earth element. Similarly, what is this water element? It is the element of, you could say, of fluidity, that which flows, which oozes. In the body we have blood, sweat, urine, phlegm, <coughs> that is the water element in the body. <coughs> outwardly, <coughs> outwardly we have water, oil, grease, and so on. And yet the, earth, the water element in the body, the water element externally, just the water element. In the body we have the heat element or the fire element. What is the fire element? The element of heat. Externally, we have heat, fire, hot objects. They're just the same in nature, just the heat element. The air element is the element of oscill <coughs> oscillation, vibration, movement, the element by reason of which we're able to move our limbs, and similarly by which we breathe in and out and according to the ancient Indian physiology it's the, also the wind element which is responsible for the circulation of the we say the nervous impulses through the body and according to the and then outwardly we have the air element in the air we breathe in the wind and when we examine them we find in their nature, they're both the same, just air element. So between this body here and the outer world, there's not a sharp distinction, but a similarity in nature. And when we really examine close up, we see there's a constant exchange between the outer world and this physical body in terms of the elements. We eat food, the food is solid, rice, curries, and so on. That's solid food, that's earth element outside, coming into the body, making up our body. And yet because of the process of metabolism, 
we don't look like a bundle of rice and curries and fruits and bananas, but the fruits and vegetables, but we look like human beings. But if we really see where does this flesh come from, this tissue come from, what keeps it, what sustains it, keeps it going, it is the salt, solid food that we eat. Then when we get thirsty, we drink water. This water is liquid element outside, we drink it, it becomes the liquid element of the body. I don't think we take fire out in, but anyway, we have uh, <laughs> physical heat, which is like the external heat. Then we're constantly breathing in, and we take in the air. But we're also giving out the elements, so that the elements of our body become the elements of the outer world. The food that we take in gets digested, and what doesn't get digested gets expelled out as excrement. Then that disintegrates and merges into the earth element of the world around us. When our bladder gets full of liquid, then we urinate. The urine comes out and adds to the external uh, water element. And um, when we breathe out, then the carbon dioxide that has been rejected by the body, that gets expelled out into the outer air element. Then when we die, when the life faculty is extinguished, then this whole body just gets burnt in the crematorium or buried in the ground and disintegrates and becomes the four documents. And so what we take to be I and mine is really just part and parcel of the natural world. It's just four elements. Then, if we even examine outwardly the world or examine inwardly the body, we find it's not all just elements. But the elements need something in which to subsist. They need a little elbow room to move around. <laughs> that elbow room is what we call the space element, the akasa doctrine. In the body, if we had only four elements, we couldn't take any food in the mouth. There would be no open space in the mouth. We couldn't get any air into the nostrils. The nostrils would be blocked all the time, and we'd just die of suffocation. If there was no space in the stomach, then the food couldn't rest in the stomach and get digested. If there was no space in the intestines, then the waste wouldn't be able to move through the intestines. So we have inwardly, in the body, the space element, and then outwardly we have the great space element, that in which all physical bodies are subsist. Okay, so those are five physical elements. But then the Buddha has added to this something most important that we would other that a materialist would overlook. This is a sixth type of element which is called the vijnana doctrine, the consciousness element. Here the consciousness element, in the six elements it's given as one. 
but when we consider the 18 datus, then we have six types of consciousness. Or according to the Abhidhamma method, they put the mind element also in consciousness. So we have seven consciousness elements. Okay, you, you said that fire will not be eaten. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, when we are taking a closer look at calories, it is not that uh, yeah, Right, very good, very good point. Actually, very good point. Because calories is uh, apart Actually. from the cheese, no? We did right, something right, right, yeah. which is... Uh, Actually, exactly, exactly the right, right. It's just that I was, my mind wasn't working quickly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that the calorie, the word calorie actually means heat. And it's the energy which is, you could say, the energy which is <coughs> con- no, embodied in the food. The energy which is embodied in the food. And so then when we eat the food and we chew it, follow it, digest it, and through the process of digestion, then that heat, that energy gets <coughs> released, and that becomes the heat of the body. Yeah, thank you for supplying that oversight. Vitality? Vitality is not the same as the heat. The vitality is another factor. It's closely connected with the heat. So if there wasn't vitality, if when the life is over, then the bodily heat goes away, and the body just cools down. Um, but the vitality is something else, it's a different dhamma. Okay, now we come to still a third classification of elements. These are called the... Well, these are another six elements which are concerned primarily with feeling, bathing. Okay, usually when the Buddha speaks about feeling, Vedana, he analyzes it into three types. Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neutral feeling. But sometimes he uses a bifold analysis of feeling. He does this by dividing first pleasant feeling, into two types. Physical pleasant feeling, bodily pleasant feeling, and mental pleasant feeling. The bodily, physical, ple- physical pleasant feeling is called simply the pleasure element, or pleasant feeling. And then the mental pleasant feeling, that is called joy. So one give you investigate, you can see a distinction between the pleasant physical feeling, when you feel something pleasant with the body, something soft, gentle, nice to touch. And then happiness, joy, delight with the mind. Okay, so that is a distinction in pleasant feeling according to whether it's bodily, physical, or mental. And similarly, the painful feeling is also distinguished whether it's physical or mental. When it's physical painful feeling, 
then it's called the pain element, or simply pain, physical pain. When you touch a hot object, or get pierced by a needle, or bitten by an ant, or by a wasp, then that's bodily pain. Then when you're feeling upset, or distressed, or depressed, or um, troubled by something, or sad, sorrowful, then that is mental painful feeling. That's called the, the pleasant mental feeling, joy, that is called somanasa. And the painful mental feeling, that's called domanasa. So we have, uh, that's a good point, they can be understood as doctors, elements, because they have different natures, different characteristics. Sukha and Somanasa, they have the same characteristic in that they're both pleasant. But if one examines them, the nature is somewhat different when you feel a nice pleasant breeze that gives a pleasant bodily sensation, or a smooth touch, pleasant bodily sensation. But that's quite different from feeling joy or happiness in the mind. Similarly, physical pain, painful touch of a pin or an ant bite, that has quite a different character from just even a touch of sadness in the mind or a little worry or distress in the mind. It doesn't have to be deep sadness, but even just a moment of mental darkness, that is dominant. Now the fifth element of feeling is called upeka equanimity. And I have to say, this is a little bit of a puzzle to me, <laughs> because it seems that there can be also a distinction of physical and mental neutral feeling. For example, when one sees an object which is completely indifferent to oneself, then one doesn't feel happy or joyful because of it. Well, actually, that could be understood as a mental, also mental equanimity. But, well, within the Abhidhamma system, I should say, they say that the feeling that arises in connection with the physical senses is always a neutral feeling. But maybe there's a difference between the Abhidhammic approach and the Sutta approach, such that in the Sutta approach, the Upeka equanimity should always be understood as a mental feeling. So even in the sutta it says that in connection with each of the five physical senses there arises pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or feeling which is neither pleasant nor painful. But anyway, in the sutta method there's only upeka is mentioned, equanimity, not distinguished whether it's physical or mental. Maybe that is just because this is classified as the nature of feeling. Yeah. So, and in the, in the, in the, the usual uh, perfection of yeah. feeling, it is only special minds by which they are not affected mentally when they are physically affected. There is no pleasant feeling, uh, uh, no joy when an ant is eating you. Yeah. 
So therefore, genuine equanimity probably has to be free of those sensations. Yeah. But also the texts, I mean, the sutras do distinguish between what's called the equanimity of the worldly mind and the equanimity of, let's say, technically it's called the equanimity associated with the house with worldliness, gehanisika, literally dependent on household life, and nekama nisita upeka, the equanimity dependent upon nekama and renunciation. So that is But anyway, just leaving it at the sutta level, we could understand equanimity in the important sense is a men- always a mental feeling. So the well, that distinction is made, I think, just in order to show, to compare the worldly life with the life of renunciation. But I think one could understand different types of equanimity are arising constantly, even in a single person on different occasions. So, but the most important would be like the equanimity of, say, dull indifference of a person who has no positive, special positive feelings, no negative feelings, but just sort of lackadaisically goes through life without any particular, um, but in a very dull, apathetic way. And then there's a higher equanimity which comes from somebody who has trained the mind not to be affected by the changing circumstances of worldly life, not to be affected by loss and gain, fame and obscurity, pleasure and pain. And here would definitely be a different law, no? Under these circumstances. But otherwise, when there is sukha or dukkha, in the dukkha typical, if there is dukkha vedana and the emotional process is cut off, then we can say the mind has a certain power of equanimity. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But there is still dukkha vedana. Yeah. But the uh, yeah. emotional part is cut off. Yeah, that's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> you see, the two physical feelings, sukha and dukkha, they arise inevitably. As long as we have a physical body, we're bombarded by sense impressions, and so we inevitably undergo pleasure, pleasant feeling and painful feeling. But what is important to control from the aspect of the Buddha's teaching is the reaction to the pleasant and painful feeling. If one is unaware, one just drifts with the current of the mind, then it's natural that when we experience sukha, pleasant physical feelings, then we become delighted and joyful. 
and then Somanasa arises. Then Dominasa will arise, grief or sorrow will arise. But when one trains the mind, then one can experience both pleasant and painful feelings with upeka, with equanimity. So Somanasa can be good, Somanasa is, can be wholesome. So even an Arahant will experience Somanasa, joy. It doesn't, the Arhant isn't always in a state of equanimity. <laughs> Only he's in a state of equanimity in the sense that the mind cannot be swayed by gain and loss, fame and obscurity and so on. Isn't that, that exactly what joy is, being swayed by circumstances? So it's a scene that the Arahant experience. No, joy doesn't arise only because one is swayed by circumstances. But joy will arise, for example, when an Arahant, when he reflects on, say, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then there will arise Somanasa, when he reflects on his own liberation, then there will arise Somanasa. Even when he goes into the one, two, three, the lower three jhanas, in those jhanas there is Somanasa. Now that is not true because when a perfect mind, we have only two motives for thought process. That would be Karna Munita. So in those things, uh, maybe even the Kama Domanasa, and mudita can be joy. Mudita can be joy. Make I don't think that would arise in an arhan. I don't know. No, I'm sure. I'm sure that wouldn't arise in an arhan because domanasa is still, even though it can be on the side of you know spiritual development, but technically, I'd say it's always to some degree unwholesome. Because it's still some kind of dissatisfaction. But in the case of the Nekama Dominasa, it's like dissatisfaction when somebody is not making quick enough progress with his meditation, then or not realizing higher knowledges, then one will feel some kind of dissatisfaction, discontent. That's Dominasa. But in a way, it's a useful Dominasa because of what stirs one on to greater effort. But I, I'm quite sure that once one realizes, not that I've done so yet, but once one realizes our hardship, then even that Nekama Dominasa is done. Am I wrong when I was of the impression that Buddha was sad in the moment he heard there are some wars going on? I think it wouldn't be a Dominasa sadness. I don't say Dominasa, but Nekama Dominasa. Uh, not even a Nekama Dominasa. How do we want that, that decide that uh, sadness? It wouldn't be really a sadness, it's a compassion, Karuna, but it's not accompanied by a feeling of sadness. Yes, therefore it is, there, there is something in common with Joya Mudita and Nekama Dominasa and Karuna? Say again. There is a kind of connection between yeah. Mudita yeah. Huh? And joy, yeah. Doubtless. Maybe and there is a joy. I don't think that the parallelism will hold perfectly. Mudita is it's definitely it's a state of joy. It's rejoicing at the 
good fortune, the success, the happiness of others. Karuna is compassion, empathizing with the sorrow of others, with the misery and misfortune of others. But in terms of the actual mental factors that are present in Karuna, there wouldn't be dominance, actual dominance. I would never use the word Dhormanasa alone. I would only use Nekama Dhormanasa. I don't think there would be Nekama Dhormanasa. Okay, let's just finish up. Okay, four, we have the five elements now with the Pekka. Then the sixth element is Abdija, ignorance. And it's interesting because ignorance isn't a feeling. And so the question might arise, why is the Buddha included Abhijja in this group of five elements? I think the Sutta doesn't give the explanation, but I think the reason would be that when there is Abhijja present, then these five types of feeling become, we say, the fuel for craving, for tanha. So when one experiences a pleasant feeling with ignorance, then ignorance covers up the nature of the pleasant feeling and then one becomes attached to it and has the craving for more. When there's a pleasant bodily feeling, a pleasant mental feeling. When there's ignorance present, it covers up the painful feeling, whether bodily or mental. So instead of just realizing it's a painful feeling, then one develops resentment towards it, aversion, and wishes to escape from it or to eliminate it. Well, sir, uh, a vijja here, when you say a vijja is present, this implies that a vijja is not simply absence of wisdom. Right, right. A vijja isn't just the absence of wisdom, but it's an actual active mental factor, which has the function of sort of covering up the true nature of things. We translate it as ignorance, but uh, ignorance does have the connotation of just not knowing. Yeah, and literally Abhijja means non-knowledge. But there's more there. But there is definitely more. The Buddha, in fact, he says that the element of ignorance is a mahadhatu. It's a powerful or mighty element because it's really, it's that kind of mental blindness which covers over the true nature of things. So instead of understanding things as they really are, one understands them in distorted ways. So the ignorance is also hindrance. It's actually mentioned in the text as a hindrance. It's not in the five hindrances. Yeah, yeah. And it's also said to be a hindrance in its own right. The sixth hindrance. Okay, and then, okay, I'll just continue. When avijja, when ignorance is present, then when one experiences a, fi- a, a neutral feeling, equanimous feeling, instead of just recognizing it as a feeling of equan- equanimity, then one sort of settles into it with a dull, you um, say, a dull, apathetic, indifferent, attitude of mind and in that way one remains caught in the swamp of ignorance.
Okay, so maybe we will stop at this point and then continue with this very rich, <laughs> dense and rich <laughs> next time. If there are any questions, then please feel free to ask them. I wouldn't say all of the emotions, because emotions are very complex. I think from the psychological viewpoint, they're very complex. I would say somanasa and domanasa are elements of feeling which accompany emotions and give them a particular coloring. But emotions, in terms of the aggregates, would be a very complicated mixture of at least the feeling aggregate, the sankara aggregate, and maybe even the perception or sanya aggregate. say that the mind can apprehend mathematical relationships I mean, in its own sphere, quite an abstraction from what is true in physical reality. For example, this is a good example that I came up with you know, in some other context. If somebody were to, this is to show that the laws of mathematics hold independent of physical reality. Suppose somebody takes a bag and puts in three oranges, then takes three apples, we ask how many fruits are in the bag. Um, he opens the bag, and there's four apples, three oranges. Okay, he does this again. He takes three grapes, puts it in, and maybe three belly fruits. Opens it up. There's four grapes, three belly fruits. Okay, he's not using. He thinks okay, fruits are not behaving properly. He'll take three marbles and three. Cricket balls? They use the ball in cricket? <laughs> Three cricket balls puts it in. Opens up, and there's seven objects. Four marbles, three cricket balls. Because of this, does he come to the conclusion 
3 plus 3 equals 7? No. <laughs> you come to the conclusion something strange is going on. Maybe there's a malicious demon who keeps on putting one other object in the bag. Or maybe some object is materializing out of nowhere. But he knows it's an absolute truth, a certain necessary truth. 3 plus 3 <coughs> equals 7. No matter how many times he performs it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anyway, these are matters which lie beyond the food of